Are you critically insane, have a lot of excess money, or even better, both? Then you can support this podcast by clicking on the ACAR support button. You can give as rarely and as little as you want, which, judging by the quality of this, I'm sure you're wanting to do. Hello, and welcome to a PhD Student Reads episode... 22. I am the titular PhD student Daniel Underwood and joining me as always, hopefully surviving the maple syrup drought that I read about, uh, Rodrigo Cockting. How are you? I am doing well. Uh, yeah, I have a, a bottle of maple syrup. I fortunately don't need much more than that because it does last a while. So I think we should be good. I won't lie. I didn't even think maple syrup was something that just could run. There could be a drought of. But... Uh, so I, I think people would underestimate the the role that maple syrup plays in the Canadian economy. Um, it is regulated, as you can infer, that they did kind of release more maple syrup because there was a bit of a drought. But there's also like a huge mob behind maple syrup. Mm. There's, uh, yeah, like it's a um, Quebec family. I, I think there's like a Netflix special about it. It's like Dirty Money or something. And there's like a, an episode about uh the maple syrup, but it is very fascinating. I think, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, I, I think it's funny that Canadians have a lot of stereotypes, and then when you look into these stereotypes, they're not—they're just like scratching the surface of how much they are fitting into these uh, these stereotypes. Because uh, you know, maple syrup is a big part of the life here. Yes, well, clearly that. I mean, there's a reason stereotypes exist, I suppose. But mm-hmm. I've written down this dirty money maple syrup on this post-it note because, well, I was like, oh, it's just like honey, but a bit nicer, I guess. But, well, mob, mob organized. I didn't even think Canada would be a sort of country that has crime. It always seems, you know, always hear about how nice Canadians are. Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, in relation to our neighbors to the south is kind of where our good reputation comes from. But, I, you know, like, we are not immune to crime we are not immune to like a a host of problems i think just it's always like relatively Mm. compared to the alternative we look better (laughs) well as this is episode 22 i once again so there's a there's a quite a good website i found it's based on uk laws and it just lists things based (laughs) on your age that you are and are not allowed to do and unfortunately as the numbers are creeping up the the sort of things you get uh, become a slightly more depressing so Whilst last month it was, you know, 21, drinking, smoking, whatever. This month, uh, it's uh, if you're a person in care and you're 22, you're no longer allowed to be in, in care anymore. You are considered an adult in the eyes of the care system and are therefore set free to uh, live your live your own life. When you mean care as in, like, orphans I, kind of thing? Yes, like foster care. Like yeah, exactly. Foster care, okay. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, there we go. 23, maybe I'll try and find, there must be something good that happens when you're 23 perhaps, or maybe I'll just find some fact about the number 23, that might just be of slightly more cheerful. Blink-182 once said, nobody likes you when you're 23, in a yeah. hit song they had back in back in the day, so maybe there nobody does. So, oh, well, that's, that's uh, next, next month's fact. You'll become, yeah. you're Maybe you can find a music thing, there's also Taylor Swift's 22, right? Uh, that's I don't know true. about you, but I'm feeling 22. You know, maybe you can keep on the number thing yeah, with music that's, instead that's of quite having to find song as well. depressing I mean, the, laws. Uh, 
I'm not the biggest Taylor Swift fan, but that seems it's an upbeat song, right? So she's pleased that she's yeah. 22, right? It I think. seems like, yeah, I think she wrote it as a celebratory thing. I too am not a big Taylor Swift song fan, uh, but actually quite the opposite. But you know, <laughs> I know she's out there. I'm, I, I, I have two ears and radio. Exactly, me too. Uh, so as as this is a, as a podcast, and all podcast hosts are, you know, obliged to say, like, share, subscribe, follow the show on Twitter at PhD Reads. That's yeah, that's the sort of I don't know the business side of the thing done. Mm-hmm. Even though business wise, I mean, this is hardly a money making endeavor. It's more of a as as with episode one, I have too many comic books I haven't read and need some sort of way to get me to read them. Right. Uh, before we move on to more cheerful things, those of you who are sort of on the pulse of, of comic books, I suppose, may have come across the announcement about George Perez, acclaimed comic book artist. George Perez, most known for Christ on Infinite Earths. He drew the first four issues of the Infinity Gauntlet. And I didn't know, but was also the artist behind the JLA Avengers crossover that has been long out of print but I do want to read just because I imagine that's quite an experience. So Also big on Wonder Woman is kind of where mm. where I come from with him. Mm. So quite a few years ago now, he was he lost an eye, lost sight in one eye due to diabetes and retired from sort of art drawing, uh, like mainstream comic book drawing. Uh, unfortunately, this past, about a week ago now, uh, he sort of made the announcement that, that he has an inoperable pancreatic cancer and has chosen to uh, not pursue treatment and would rather sort of use the time he has left to uh, enjoy it. Um, so oh, our thoughts yeah. are with, with George Perez. Uh, and you can see how, what a nice man he is because he wrote, he's set up this, this Facebook page. I'll put a link in the, in the description. Uh, and he's, you know, talking about how, you know, he wants to spend this year, with his family going to conventions, meeting people that sort of made his career what it is. So that's clearly a sign that George Perez is an all-round lovely person. So uh, yeah, our thoughts it makes it no indeed. less sad, really. Though absolutely a uh, a uh, titan in the comic book drawing world. He was around for many many decades. He started in the seventies, if not before, and mm-hmm. that JLA Avengers crossover was in the nineties. So yeah. I mean, it's interesting because as uh, comic books are kind of having this boom in more mainstream media, like movies mm. and TV shows, you know, like we it, for the Marvel movies, for a lot of it, they always had these Stan Lee cameos and we've now yeah. lost Stan Lee. And as we go forward, we're more and more losing the people that are responsible for creating the 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 imagery that we then get to yeah. experience on TV and movies and so I don't know I mean like on some level it's nice that a lot of them were able to see the success before going but you know it does make me wonder like what happens in twenty years when a lot of them are not around to to be there to see what we do next oh, yeah just a bit sad no absolutely I am sadly I suppose I was quite glad when he did pass away that they weren't like we'll keep putting him in to sort of act like some sort of tribute because that would have been, have been a bit uh, like for example I don't know who runs it but the Stanley Instagram account still uploads photos and news and I find that a bit a bit weird because it's sort of mm-hmm. like it, it's more like a fan page now but it's his it's his Instagram account it's like well if it was me I would have just turned it off or at least you know, yeah. kept, kept it there for people to look at but not post I mean at the end of the day- latest MCU trailer 
Yeah. Presumably, I would say that the family is running it, I'm guessing. And I'm they sure. probably knew him best and know what he would have wanted or not wanted. So I'm, I I tend not to get too involved in those mm. things. But I do I do know it's like a bit strange every when that kind of thing happens. Like I have an aunt who shares uh, a Facebook account with her deceased husband. And mm-hmm. so sometimes the posts look like they're coming from him and he's been dead for 10 years. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe it gives her some sense of joy to do that. So I just let them let them do their thing. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's fair enough. So, yeah, George Perez, our thoughts are with you. Hope you, well, not get better soon. That's the wrong thing to say, but hopefully you you find... Yeah. I hope tran- this like, last, last part of the journey is peaceful yeah. for him, as peaceful as it can be. Exactly. Uh, but speaking of the MCU, it's another month. The MCU continues. This month with Hawkeye. At the time, so it's just, it's what, December the 11th now, so Spider-Man is not out, so if you are, I know this will go up on the 19th, so if you're expecting on the pulse Spider-Man, no, far from home feedback, uh, you'll not be, you'll not be getting it here. Was far from home the last one? What's this one called? No way home. Whatever, there's no Spider-Man talk here, Hawkeye exclusively. Uh, there's only been four episodes of, of Hawkeye so far, and I think it's great. I realise a lot of this Phase 4, I've been complaining a lot, but I think this is probably the, is absolutely the best MCU TV output, in my opinion, and perhaps my favourite thing in Phase 4. It has that very comic booky feel. It's based off the Fraction Arja run. Uh, you can go back and listen to early episodes of this where I talk about that. Um, it looks like that. It they take a lot of inspiration from that, which we can probably discuss when it comes to the compensation David Arja may or may not have received in the uh, production of the show. Mm-hmm. But Haley Steinfeld, Jeremy Renner, they make a great duo, and I do think it acts as a better send off for Black Widow than uh, Black Widow did. Have you seen Hawkeye? And what do you think, Rodrigo? Yeah, I I have been watching it. I do. I have been. It's very like it kind of fits a lot of things that I enjoy. Christmas in particular, Mm -hmm. I'm very big on. And um, the Fraction Naja run that you were describing is also something that I really, uh, really love. I love uh, Young Heroes, which is kind Mm -hmm. of a tease of what I will be talking about a little bit later. Um, it's been good, and like I'm also a big street level characters. Yeah. You can kind of already see a lot of that bleeding into the series. Like Echo is in it. Um, a strong implication, I would assume, that Kingpin is coming yeah. very soon. Um, you know, maybe some subtle hints that Mockingbird was somehow in this. So it, I I think it's great. I think it's doing a very good job. I think it's based off a of very good material. Um, I wonder with two episodes left if Yelena was necessary to this plot. We we just saw her in this last one and I'm thinking, okay, well now there's several threads that are open instead of wrap heading towards wrapping up in the last two episodes that are left because I think it's just six episodes, right? Yeah, from I think what so. I what I googled. And so we'll see. Um maybe she's only meant to tease future appearances of the Contessa Allegra de Fontaine or whatever her name is. Um, so I don't know, like that part I'm a little uh, tentative about, but the rest of it I have been uh, very much enjoying. And, you know, it inspired me to start rereading the Hawkeye 
uh, fraction run that you you described. I'm about halfway there so far. I just got to the the phenomenal uh, lucky slash pizza dog yes. issue. Um, that it, it's funny. I, it it's very interesting. Even from the first issue of that comic book, it plays around with chronology in a way that a lot of other comic book series don't. And so, even like when when you get to the pizza dog episode, like you see, all, like I because I've read it all, I know that there's like kind of three plot points that are happening here that are going forward, and it's kind of like this exploration of Kazi and like what who he is and what he's doing. You know, uh, Kate going to L.A. and then mm-hmm. kind of uh, Hawk Clint and his brother that are about to kind of meet up, and but it's all kind of already teased in this episode, even though like Lucky is doing his own thing. Um, yeah, it's. It's great. Um, I I have nothing but good things to say about this series. I would say that I'm also less sour on the other projects that they've had. So perhaps I am not a, an unbiased or you know like a a good judge of it though. But like this, I would also say that this is I think perhaps my favorite. I think to me more so than the Black Widow send off that I did. I was able to get some some emotional connection to the movie. I would say this has done a good job of yeah. giving me an emotional connection to Jeremy Renner with whom yeah. like his Hawkeye I had very little attachment in terms of the other movies and you know like not by coincidence right like for the first movie he's basically not himself for 90 yeah. percent of the movie and you know he even struggles to have a lot of uh th- meat to his story beyond having this family that mm-hmm. they kind of showed in in the first one and then explored a bit in the fourth one because he wasn't also in in infinity war is the third one right yeah yeah okay and so uh you know even in this that that scene in episode two or three i think in episode two when um kate is kind of writing down because he Mm -hmm. can't hear what his son is saying to him and like that is great and then kind of his more direct mentorship of kate in this last episode where he's kind of like putting up the trees and teaching her like the trick with the coin which is stuff straight out of the comic book like you can see a lot like it's done a lot for for his character now they just need to land the plane which at times has been kind of like the struggle for these series you know like so we'll see how they do but so far i've been very satisfied yeah, I wonder if this. I mean, we talked about it before when I was complaining about, oh, why make, why make, uh, uh, oh, what's her name, the the witch lady from One Division? Why make a show about her? How's that gonna be relevant? And you brought up the fact that well, these shows are more like just actual comic books where they don't need to be relevant at all in any way. Yes, this has shown some relevance to the MCU as a whole with Yelena showing up, but it's like, oh, here's just Hawkeye doing his thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Swordmaster's probably not going to be appearing in Avengers 5 for, for any reason. I do think that I wonder if perhaps the big payoff at the end will be Hawkeye dying. Because, I mean, let's be honest, I can't see this sort of like seems to be the peak of where they're going to be able to take Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye. So perhaps. Because they've got to start setting up these young Avengers somehow, I would imagine. I see that's probably the end goal. They keep cropping up. So perhaps him going, they can just sort of tie off. Because most, even someone like, perhaps, you know, because Hulk will be appearing in, in She-Hulk. It does seem sort of like, you know, Cap's had his story done. Iron Man is done. Black Widow is done. Thor, perhaps, you know, he's gone off to join the Guardians for a bit. So And he's got a film left. So, yeah. you know, his bow, you know, sort of tying a knot on all of the phase one stuff so then everyone else that they've introduced since then 
Falcon becoming Cap from Shang Chi, etc. You know, yeah. they'll be the the focus now, and we, don't, we won't need to worry. You know, people being like, oh. You know, you always see those things. Oh, Robert Downey Jr. said he might come back as Iron Man. So I don't really want that, to be honest. I'd rather, you know, new characters, new things. And I think Kate Bishop. And the fact they've cast Hayley Steinfeld, I think, is a good place good place to start. Yeah, she's great. I think, like, unlike comic books where you can, 30 years from now, you can draw Captain America to be mm-hmm. the same age as you did. Like, Chris Evans is not immortal, right? So at some point, you have to have an exit plan. And... At the end of the day, like the box office market is not sustainable at that point. Like you can't have ten Marvel movies coming out a year. It's just yeah. not possible. And so if you want to tell new stories, you have to give up on the old ones. So I do agree. I think in one way or another they will retire his character. I just think it's coming so close to Christmas. Like they probably want like a Christmas movie. I don't know that they want to end it on a bummer note of uh, Jeremy Renner dying. So my feel is more so that he's finally going to retire and head out to that farm. That way they still have the character in the back mm-hmm. pocket. If they ever do want to do something crazy where they bring in as many of the characters as they can again. But definitely I think going forward, uh, Kate Bishop will be the Hawkeye for all intents and purposes. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, as you mentioned earlier, Echo is in it, and there's that very strong tease that it is possibly Vincent D'Onofrio's voice and a white person's hand uh, in, a, in a flashback sequence, stating that, therefore, he is he is the kingpin. And they've recently announced that, well, Kevin Feige said that if they if Charlie Cox is Daredevil in all mm-hmm. intents and purposes, ergo, peace is restored. All the good things from the Netflix shows will be transplanted into the MCQ, probably post-Spider-Man, I yeah. imagine. I think I read, I don't know if this is a rumor or what it was, but it was in an article that they were talking about Vincent D'Onofrio being the kingpin, that Jessica Jones is supposed to appear in She-Hulk. Ooh. And I did not know that, but I think Jessica Jones is another part of the Netflix mm-hmm. uh, MCU that I really enjoyed. Frankly, with the exception of Finn Jones, who I don't, I didn't <laughs> detest, um, I liked most of the characters that they did. I think like there was some weakness in storytelling at some mm-hmm. points, but I didn't think that that was necessarily the fault of the people that were interpreting the characters um you know like so if they wanted to find a way to introduce all of that or most of that i would be very interested uh i think vincent d'onofrio i kind of knew he was going to be in this because he had been liking tweets of people saying he like he like and that seemed to me like not an unreliable source of information now whether charlie cox shows up in uh in uh the Spider-Man movie, as has been commented online, I guess we'll have to see. I, that seems complicated to me because mm-hmm. he's a lawyer, right? So yeah. if he's like from a different universe, how would his law degree work? So what, is he our <laughs> oh, universe, like yeah. this universe Daredevil? That's the part that I'm like, cause it, it, I mean, it's pretty clear from the trailers that Spider-Man is going to bring in characters from different universes, right? Like that, like Doc Ock is looking for a Tobey Maguire looking Peter yeah. Parker. He's not looking for Tom Holland. So I don't know that that's like, I understand like the, how it could open a door being a multiverse thing to have Charlie Cox slash Daredevil in that movie. But mm. Yeah, but I mean, on the other hand, the strong argument in favor is that one of the next projects that's coming up is She-Hulk. She-Hulk being Mm -hmm. a lawyer, a lawyer that is often involved in superhero things. It seems like a perfect place for Charlie Cox to continue his story. If they do manage to confirm these, I was thinking like 
if they can't use the the title Daredevil because they don't want it to be like a direct continuation of the Netflix series because they don't own that. They can't put that there. Maybe they should just rebrand it as The Man Without Fear and make it kind of like, if you have seen the Daredevil stuff, it is the same character, but you don't need it. You know what I mean? Like so, so just kind of skip the need to tell that that same origin story and do your own thing. Uh, we'll see. I, I'm excited. I I am a big fan of Daredevil. I'm a huge fan of Charlie Cox. Not just as an acting as his performance, but I knew that he loved being Daredevil, and you could yeah. tell in his role. And so it was one of the the most depressing things about losing like the Netflix MCU stuff that he did not get to ever be like in a movie. Like, for example, yeah. I was telling uh, my brother Diego, I was watching, um, they have these recaps of the season on Netflix because it's it, like, for example, like before season three would drop, they would give you like a video where it was recapping all of season yeah. two. So I watched those to kind of remember the season. And I was telling him, the only thing that this show was missing was big enough budget for Daredevil to do the flips and stuff that like Spider-Man does in movies, mm-hmm. like for him to do the comparable thing because he does that a lot in the comic books, but he couldn't do that in the show because like where you're going to put all your budget there unlikely. So it was like a lot of smaller jumps on rooftops and more personal fighting. But I think it would be great to be able to see him to do that. So if Disney wants to throw a bunch of money at Charlie Cox, I think that we're in for a ride. And if they really want to distance themselves, they can give him the yellow and black suit that I like more than all the others. They could be like, yeah, I feel like I might be in the minority if uh, if they did that. They'd be like, oh, yeah, we aren't going to give him the red suit. <laughs> yellow it is. I love the yellow suit, but I love the yellow suit as like a flashback, as in like it dates the character mm. very nicely. So it's like whenever you... S- it looks like of a different time. So I always enjoy when it's like, oh, we're going to tell like a Golden Age era story. Like Bendis does this great in, in this. Um, There was one arc where it's like a mobster that's come out of jail and it's kind of like in three timelines. Mm-hmm. And so you can see kind of like the modern day Daredevil dealing with him currently and the gladiator is involved in that arc, but also flashbacks to the past of him jumping in and he's in like his yellow costume. And it's just like, I love the style of it. I do think that it just doesn't work in the modern context because, you know, bright yellow trying to hide in the <laughs> shadows is not like the, the most inspired choice. But I, I absolutely love absolutely love the design for it. If there is like a good in-story reason for him to use it, I'm always game. He's uh, Perhaps he's off to be Daredevil in like Egypt where it's really sunny all the time. He's like, yeah. yellow, yellow will do for this. Um, I think my, as we get closer to Spider-Man... And having seen uh, Let There Be Carnage, I am slightly concerned how many people are going to be in this. Like, would it just be because if you, the, there's a post credit scene in, in Let There Be Carnage where Venom gets taken through the multiverse and then ends up watching that J. Jonah Jameson announcement on the TV. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, so, so he's in it too? Okay. Yeah. It's kind of like, it, was there not a lesson to be learned by the, the worst of the Sam Raimi films mm. that perhaps too many villains is not the right move? But at the same time, like the idea of a Sinister Six is exciting, so I want to hope against all hope that... Well, I think sometimes often the, the what the complaint may be is like, did we didn't do a good job uh, like giving enough introduction to these characters, and I'm like... I don't know, maybe skip it. I'm enough of a comic book fan that I know like they're who they are. I don't need like I, I what I really want is just to see that big nice fight. Like I, I'm more I'm more uh care perhaps in giving some some relevance to Tom Holland and, and the reasons behind the decisions that he's gonna make. Yeah. 
Well, it'll be interesting to see, nonetheless. I imagine someone like Tom Hardy's Venom, it'll just be like a, oh, look at you. And then maybe a bit of the symbiote will be left behind or something because mm-hmm. Tom Hardy's Venom is not, for all intents and purposes, Spider-Man anti-hero Venom. Yeah. I can't see them going head-to-head in some sort of fight. They don't seem, you know, they're more similar I don't know why they don't go all the way with the Tom Hardy's Venom. Like, his symbiote look, it's like 85% of the way there to the comic book look. And I don't understand why not just go the full 100% because it's far removed already from, like, kind of the the more, like, realistic-looking heroes. He doesn't look real, but he also doesn't look like the comic book version. It's like, give him, like, the full spider and give him, like, roughly that size of body dimension because it's kind of, like, this midway between Tom Hardy's body and the comic book Venom's, yeah. like, body mass. It doesn't go the full nine yards, and I don't understand. Like, it's kind of, like, the worst of both worlds to see <laughs> to see it. Well, they already said they're going to be making a Venom 3, so perhaps he'll get the spider symbol from mm-hmm. from Tom Holland and then take it back into Sony land, and then you'll yeah. have the the, uh, the the white spider that we all like. Mm-hmm. That won't deal with the size problem unless they decide. Yeah. Unless they're listening to this right now. What's her name? Amy Pascal, Sony uh, producer of all the, the Marvel things. We want a bigger Venom, please. Speaking of... Actually, before we move on to what I read, because it is Venom-related, what do you think... So there's a lot of talk about when these MCU films and shows come out about how much compensation the creators get and they always seem to be not much, especially when the films make an extortionate amount. And what has come up, this conversation has flared up again in regards to David Arger and, and Hawkeye because he gets a special mention in, in the credits, but the credits are pretty much his drawings, animated somewhat yeah and it's sort of like well how much do you pay i mean because technically marvel do already own those pictures that he drew and i imagine he got some money but yeah i don't know what the solution is other than paying them more money i guess yeah well i don't know i hope that it's kind of a self-correcting problem i would say that this issue with with the artist doesn't start or end with the movies, right? Like even before that, the way that we view comic book creation, and I would say with the exception of of this podcast, like I kind of followed your lead, but you always did a good job of crediting people beyond just the writer. But often Mm -hmm. you do talk about like Claremont's X-Men or Bendis' run on New Avengers or even like Fraction's Hawkeye, right? And so there hasn't always been a fair distribution of credit. And I think, to be fair, a lot of people, a lot of comic book creators are being a lot more vocal about how much of a collaboration it is Mm -hmm. now. But I do think back in the day, like even Stan Lee, how many lawsuits did he have against co-creators and how many fights and so on because he wanted to say that he was the creator of a variety of characters and artists are obviously were obviously part of the process um so i you know like the the issue that we're currently facing on the movie side is not 
has not started with the movies. It is a product of a more nefarious underbelly of comic book credits that that are not given equally to everybody, right? Like even like the inkers and the the, the like the 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 speech balloon, the people that designed the speech balloons, like that's yeah. a big part of a comic book as an art form, Absolutely. right? And it's not an easy job, and it it can be distracting or it can be enhancing to the experience. So like that's kind of like one thing I would say that. It is true that when you work for Marvel, ultimately the ideas belong or, or the, the created work ends up with them. Like that is the contract that they put out. They pay um, creators more than they could obtain perhaps on their own because they want to in the end own that. Now, that's something that needs to be kind of acknowledged and explained by artists. So the new people coming in, they have an understanding of what they're mm-hmm. getting into. But I think ultimately they do need to keep in mind that if it is that kind of almost like parasitical, that it's like they they they, they just kind of hop aboard the artist and then are able to pull off all the good stuff, that what they're going to end up doing is just feeding more people into the vertigos and the image comics where yeah. they're able to do uh, a lot more comic created stuff or like even, oh my God, what is the name of this uh, Substack is like the new thing that is trying to grab a okay. lot of people to head over, right? Like they have Snyder, they brought in a lot of people to create comic books for them. Comixology now has some some uh, independent comic books on their end. And so they are going to lose a lot of these uh, these incredibly brilliant minds if they don't make it more appetizing, even on the back end. Now, it's kind of like uh, other unions in like, the movie industry before like Netflix stuff streaming forever. That was not part of the conversation. And so you didn't know that you had to have that thought when you were doing going into your contracts. But they are now. And so I do think that I don't know what the if there is a unionization effort or, you know, how strong there is, but maybe there is a need to renegotiate the term. It's because there are new ways that your work is being used in the future. And yeah. if there is money to be made out, off of it, it should not be money that is made exclusively by the company, right? I, it, mm-hmm. Companies are huge. They, they can they can survive with a smaller piece of the pie. Um, the, this fraction, the, this hot fraction and Adjust series that we're watching on Disney Plus, like it has the DNA of their hard work all over yeah, it. Absolutely. And so... They should be. They should receive fair uh, compensation. I think. I mean, that isn't a controversial statement, but I would say that like the 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 issues to be solved here are less about like whether you and I should watch this on Disney Plus and more so can comic book creators uh, gather together and renegotiate the terms of their mm-hmm. contracts, which I think they should. And you know, yeah. if that point comes, and uh, I, the companies like Marvel, DC, other ones are not acting in you know, like in, in good faith, then perhaps that, that does warrant more support from the community that also benefits from their creation, right? But at least for now, I guess, like, I would say that the next step is kind of in their court to see what they can get in terms of their contracts. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Absolutely. So comic books, actual comic books that I have read. So it's me up first this month. And as I mentioned earlier, it's something Venom related. Because after watching Let There Be Carnage and being thoroughly uh, whelmed this is probably the nicest way of putting it uh i realized that there was a carnage story i had in my pile that i haven't even touched and that is absolute carnage published on the 7th of august 2019 uh by and it collects issues one to five of absolute carnage it's written by donny cates with art by ryan stegman and mark bagley inked by jp mayer jay lyston uh ryan stegman and 
John Dell. It's coloured by Frank Martin and lettered by VCs Clayton Cowles. So I had to do a bit of reading because Kate took over Venom in, in 2018. And uh, that was along with Ryan Stegman. And they sort of took over the book and guided it in their own way into this whole story about this god of the symbiotes. And, and they left the book in, in 2020. And it was rather than something maybe slightly more episode of the week, like Old Home, which is very much a long story that uh, each book was very much a chapter. And Absolute Carnage fits somewhere within there towards the end as it was published in, in 2019. Uh, I would say, though, that you don't really need to know uh, all of that because the first page of Absolute Carnage begins with a recap of everything Venom-related. Uh, and this is done by, by Eddie Brock. So there's this god, and his name is Null. And he created the symbiotes, of which Venom, Carnage, Shriek, Anti-Venom, they're all, you know, you, if you're listening to this, you know what a symbiote is. Uh, and then got Null, he went about space murdering and pillaging and such. And so his his own creations, the symbiotes, they imprisoned him uh, in like within a core of a planet. So this is the planet of the symbiotes but the planet itself is made up of symbiotes that are basically just holding down Null so he he can't escape. Uh, so I say Venom is one of these symbiotes and he has had a lot of hosts over the years so we've got Spider-Man, we've got Eddie Brock, Flash Thompson, Captain America, The Thing, Venom's got 500 kids I think by now all different colours all with different different abilities uh, and so a lot of Earth 616 has had uh, some sort of interaction with a symbiote. And it's told to us here that every time a symbiote binds with a new host, it leaves a little bit of its DNA behind. And this bit of DNA is called a codex. So Carnage, first offspring of Venom, the red one, uh, uh, he, he is back and he's once again bound to, to Cletus Cassidy, who is less of a human being at this point and more of just sort of like a sentient corpse and uh, they want to go around and collect all these codices from all of these various people and then use them to awaken Null and, and bring about the apocalypse I suppose uh, and so Eddie has been telling all of this information to a young boy named Dylan. It's revealed later on that Dylan is actually Eddie's son but in this first issue uh, Dylan doesn't know this. I think he just thinks that Eddie is his uncle or godfather or, or something or other. Eddie is unfortunately a, a wanted man after some venom-based shenanigans at Rikers Island, but it was not Eddie that was in the symbiote at this point. It was some criminal named Lee Price, who who is now dead. So uh, he doesn't know where the symbiote is. He doesn't know anything about what the symbiotes are doing. He's just telling, you know, we have to be, we have to lay low because Carnage is out there killing all these people that have uh, interacted with, with, with symbiotes, and that includes me, and I don't particularly uh, want to die. Uh, so Eddie spots that they're being followed, and so they make a break for it to a train station, and they get pushed in front of the tracks by an unknown figure. It's Cletus Cassidy. We know that as the reader. Eddie does not. But the Venom symbiote, who also just happens to be at this train station, and has managed to form itself into some sort of amorphous, fully-dressed humanoid blob uh, dives onto the train tracks and of course joins with his, his most famous host Eddie Brock 
And so together they, they stop the train. The police show up, as you would imagine, if a train crashes. Uh, and they, of course, attempt to arrest Eddie. But there's a massive explosion from which carnage emerges. Uh, of course, the two symbiotes have a fight. And uh, just as when it seems like carnage is about to win and kill Eddie Brock, take his codex, uh, Eddie grabs the electrified train track, sending a jolt of electricity through him into carnage and uh, carnage breaks apart for, for a little bit. Of course, Carnage isn't dead. This is only sort of like the first three pages of this entire volume, and it would be a pretty poor Carnage-based crossover if he died right at the beginning. Uh, so they they escape the the two Brock relatives, and of course they go and meet one of the few people that is a symbiote expert, Peter Parker. Uh, so seemingly a uh, a feature of a lot of the comic books i've read this year uh, especially sex criminals they make their way to a diner where they can have a chat because no one can just talk in their own home so they go to this diner and whilst there the news comes on and this mass grave has been found and within this grave contains members of the life foundation general ross is in there uh, and as well as many others and what did all these people have in common well they'd all worn the symbiote or a symbiote at some point, and then they had died, and then have been put in this mass grave. Uh, so even if you you're dead, uh, you're not safe from Carnage's quest to collect all these codices and bring Null back. So of course, Spider-Man and Venom team up because they don't want Carnage to bring about the apocalypse, and so they then go off and visit the Maker, who is making a machine that can help remove a codex. Uh, from a symbiote host without killing them, which is Carnage's method. Uh, if you don't know who the maker is, it's Reed Richards from the alter from the Ultimate Universe. Uh, he's less of a hero than the Reed Richards that we know, the sort of the matriarch of the no, nope, the patriarch of the Fantastic Four. Uh, but he's nonetheless as equally intelligent, maybe not more so. But they need someone to test this machine on, and they, of course they aren't willing to put themselves in it just in case uh, it goes wrong. Uh, so they need to go and find somebody. But they also bring along this young boy named Normie, and Normie is the grandson of Norman Osborn, uh, who, when Norman was going insane, when he was the, the Red Goblin, when he had bound to the uh, Carnage symbiote, he tried to infect this boy with, with, with a symbiote, and so he too, this boy, has, has a codex within him. So they go to Ravencroft. If you've seen Let There Be Carnage, a lot of uh, the film is set there. Ravencroft is basically the Arkham Asylum of the Marvel Universe. And Norman Osborn is there, and uh, he is now totally insane. He, in fact, he's so insane that he believes that he is Cletus Cassidy. Uh, and so they go there, basically, so they can just take him and put him in this Codex machine. But, of course, where there is a person with a Codex, there is Carnage. So he shows up. He tears open his chest and throws out bits of the Carnage symbiote to all the caged inmates that are in uh, Ravencroft. And then they become part of his hive mind. So he has these Carnage drones. And of course they want to uh, take Norman. So Carnage throws Spider-Man through the door. Uh, luckily, so that means Carnage and Spider-Man now in the same place. But uh, of course there's this now massive horde of, of red symbiote people. I will. I won't lie. It's luckily they do look a little bit different, but when you've got a lot of people that all look like Carnage, it is a little bit difficult. It's like, oh, is that Cletus there? Is that Norman Osborn there? Because he eventually gets the, the symbiote back. 
Uh, luckily, I guess it depends. It's sort of other people will say who it is if you can't keep track of of who's who. The Cletus symbiote has got some sort of spiral, this spiral null symbol on his head, whereas none of the other ones do. Uh, so they, there's no way to take Norman out of Ravencroft without going through the, the horde of, of Carnage and Carnage drones. So Venom, is he's webbed up the door and he's holding the door shut. And he's like, Spider-Man, there's no time for you to be smart here. You're strong. Punch through the wall. And so Spider-Man webs up his hands and starts pounding through the wall. But they aren't. They can't do this in time. Carnage just smashes through Venom's defences, uh, takes Norman Osborn, takes the Codex from him, and uh, recovers, I suppose, uh, a Norman. So he too is, is part of this Carnage hive mind. And all of that, that was just part one of this uh, five-part event. So uh, we then get what I think is probably my favourite page and series of panels of this entire collection. So it's sort of it's a facial shot of Cletus, and then every there's like three or four panels which show the symbiotes. It's like oh, these two people are absolutely one and the same, and it's just Cletus talking to himself about how he wants to bring about the apocalypse. And so they, Venom and Spider-Man, they are trapped by Carnage and his horde. And so Venom, he just finishes what Spider-Man started. He turns his fist into a big mace, smashes through the wall, and. Uh, they fly away because Venom has has wings now, which which is pretty cool. Uh, Norman wants to follow them. You know he's got a history with with all of these people. But Carnage's like, look, we can do that later. There are plenty more spider-based people and people with codexes that we can go after, uh, and then we can deal with them them later. So Venom and Spider-Man they go back to the Maker, who has got some some bad news for them. So it was presumed by Eddie, that his deceased wife, uh, who was previously She-Venom, would have been found in that mass grave, because she was a symbiote wearer, she died, Carnage would have put her in this mass grave. However, it now seems that these codexes are passed on to your offspring, should you, should you have a child. So that means that Eddie's son, Dylan, is now a target of Carnage, and Eddie is not having this, and so puts more effort into... Uh, stopping Carnage and his uh, forthcoming apocalypse. So Spider-Man, he goes off to get in contact with his Avengers pals, who are also at risk. So you've got Captain America, Wolverine, The Thing are the ones that, that show up in this. And uh, Venom goes off to fight the oncoming horde. And this oncoming horde is already busy with some other people that have uh, interacted with Venom. Matt Gargan, a.k.a. Scorpion. He became Venom at some point. Uh... And so the Horde want, wants a bit of him. Miles Morales is also there, but Miles Morales, at least at this time of uh, writing, had not been venomized or symbiotized at, at any point. So he he has no codex. He's just there protecting people as a Spider-Man should. Venom shows up, tries to help, but Carnage's there and once again gets the upper hand, paralyzes Mac and takes his codex. So the carnage here is, is Norman Osborn, not Cleese Cassidy. Cleese Cassidy, he's busy doing off other hive mind things. Uh, but he takes the, the, the codex from Mac, that paralyzes him. And then he also coats Miles in, so he becomes part of, of the carnage horde. And I quite like Miles Morales' uh, symbiote appearance. It's, it's mostly black with some red detailing, like, like, his, like his suit. But he also has eight limbs, which is somewhat man-spider-esque, which I enjoyed. No one else seems to get Venom limbs based on their their sort of powers, but 
for Mars Morales, that's fine. We're making an exception for him. He looks a lot cooler like this anyway. Uh, so the fight between Norman and, and Venom continues until Venom eventually gains the upper hand and his symbiote, the Venom symbiote, wants to kill Norman, but Eddie won't allow it. And so this sets up a slight divide between the two with the symbiote basically saying, look, I'm going to do whatever it takes to stop my son, uh, even if it means that you're not my host anymore. You know, I'll just go find someone else that's willing to, to kill to stop this from happening. So they take Mac uh, back to the back to the Maker. Mac's still paralysed, uh, but the Maker is no longer there. But he is greeted by Captain America, Wolverine, and the Thing, and they've all come to get their codices removed, courtesy of the Machine. Uh, Bruce Banner is on hand to help with the science. So Normie is currently in the Machine, and is now symbiote free. So we know the Machine works, and so the Avengers climb on in and uh, to you know to be free of this of this nightmare that's soon to happen to them and we're told this is going to take about 10 minutes and then they're going to be a bit groggy when they when they get out and so spider-man takes this opportunity to talk to eddie how he's like look you should tell dylan that you're his father you know should anything happen it's probably best that he knows rather than not knowing and therefore never having a father uh, in his life but this this eddie doesn't seem to understand that he has a son and that's because this eddie is actually carnage. The symbiotes have progressed so far that they can now shapeshift into totally different people. Uh, so carnage is now with with the machine. Uh, but luckily, they do mention it rather than just out of sheer coincidence. The capsules that make up this machine are incredibly strong, and thus uh, the symbiotes are not strong enough to be able to break through them. Whilst uh, the all the heroes get their codexes removed, so. Carnage and his and his little horde of horde of uh, symbiote drone people are you know they're just fighting the Spider-Man and Venom, uh, and so they take the kids down underground to where there's this uh, armory of anti-symbiote stuff, and uh, Venom he takes this opportunity to now leave Eddie. Look, he's like there's someone stronger here who will be able to take the fight to Carnage. And that's clearly why Bruce Banner was there, because he really has no other role. So, of course, Venom and the Hulk are now one and uh, lay lay some smack down, I suppose, on, on, on Carnage. But even the Hulk is not strong enough to stop this incredibly powerful form of Carnage. And so Carnage takes the, the symbiote from Bruce Banner by turning getting deep within the Hulk's mind with his symbiote tendrils, turning him back into Bruce and then just taking the, the symbiote from him. So then we get, I think, a very 90s... I mean, Carnage is quite a 90s character to begin with, just in terms of everything about him. But now he's black and red. He's got big spikes all over his body. Carnage has become pretty much all-powerful and there's there's no hope now. Uh, but Eddie is still there, fighting away. He doesn't need a symbiote to try and protect his son. He's got Captain America's shield and this electrified gauntlet. He comes across infected Miles and takes a, a note out of his book, noting that once previously uh, Miles had given him one of his uh, Venom shock punches. And so he uses this electrified glove to give him one back. And that shocks the uh, Carnage symbiote off of him. Miles is back to normal. And being part of the hive allows uh, Miles to tell Eddie that this machine isn't quite what the maker said it was. Shocking. It does, yes, remove the symbiote from the host. 
but then it stores the symbiote away rather than uh, dispose of it completely. So now there's this big store of, of symbiotes in the room, and that's why these big mob of carnage drones are very interested in getting at this machine because they want the uh, codexes hidden hidden within. The Avengers are free. They can come back out. They join the fight. Captain America takes his shield back. Uh, but, you know, all hope... They're, 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 they're losing now. Now that uh, Carnage and Venom are won, there's not really much they can do. So Eddie fights his way through the the horde. Clearly Eddie Brock doesn't really need the symbiote. He's good enough as just a person by himself. But he gets to the machine, tears it open, and the collected bits of Venom from all these various people spew out onto him. He's Venom once again. And so takes off after Carnage. They're both flying along because they both have wings now. And so, of course, they continue to have a fight until Cletus reveals that no matter what happens, he will lose. Carnage will either kill Eddie and his son and take the final two codices that he needs to wake up Null, bring about the apocalypse, or Venom will kill Carnage and then he will reconnect with the hive mind because he will have taken on all the codices. Null will wake up and bring about the apocalypse. But Eddie's like, ah, well, it's just the Earth, isn't it? So stabs Carnage with, with, with a sword made out of the symbiote. He's there, you know, he's more interested in protecting his son rather than saving the Earth. And so Null wakes up. We cut to outer space. Null at the centre of this planet of symbiotes is now awake. He tears apart the planet and then flies towards the Earth. Uh, but for now, Earth is safe. Carnage is dead. Cletus Cassidy is dead. There's no more symbiotes on, on Earth but one, Venom. And I won't lie, I really enjoyed this. Yes, it was, I suppose, the definition of, of dumb fun, but it was fun. It was a lot better than uh, Venom at Every Carnage. Stegman's art is nice, as always. Uh, it's that sort of... I think that's the sort of the Marvel style. It's cartoony enough, but still very realistic, which is the sort of art that I, I enjoy in, in my... Uh, comic books um yeah and to be honest i would be quite interested in seeing what happens in the rest of kate's in the kate stegman venom run so i might go backwards and then forwards to to just try and get the get the whole picture yeah because i think um what is the last one that came out like last year i think king, like, king in black i king believe black. Is, is like i lot. think that is like the end mm -hmm. of their right so i do think maybe you should go backwards before wrapping up this story um, it's interesting because I kind of read the beginning of King and Black and I was like, who is this Dylan guy? Like, you know, like I had no context of it. Also, in full honesty, I, I don't know that I am a Venom fan. Like there is a specific period of time where characters that were kind of created in the 80s but made popular in the 90s by TV shows and big booms and comic books too like yeah. the Venoms, the Deadpools, the Gambits, like all these characters, like they just did not speak to me. Oh, I love Gambit as well. He's my favorite of the X-Men. Oh, you and you <laughs> Clearly, are, they spoke to me. You are in no... Like, you are not alone here, right? Like, these are very popular characters, but they just... Like, none of them connected with me. And so, like, even I remember that I, I kind of was reading comic books at mm -hmm. the time. Like, they were my older brothers, but I was reading through them. And so there is... Is it the Clone Saga? I don't know which one it is, but like Shriek is in it, and like the the weird kind of demon spider with like the six arms mm. and like the teeth, and like Venom and Carnage, and so it's like at that time I thought like this is kind of cool, but then in retrospect I don't think I've really enjoyed the more that they've leaned into like the Venoms and the Carnages. Mm -hmm. So this has always seemed weird to me. I do know like I kind of read a little bit when Venom was 
oh my god not eddie flash, flash. i guess and and that kind of seemed cool because it was kind of from like a vet angle yeah. right so i enjoyed that but then overall and it's been like back and forth but i do think having heard your description of this that it does seem like there's been a lot of lore explored and mm-hmm. so sometimes that can be good and sometimes that can be bad um i'm gonna give this a read at some point because I, you you've said enough that i think you've interested me in in giving it an exploration but i've always been very hesitant of of leaning into that uh, it's like ben riley too like do you have a connection yeah. with uh with him I think that even that is beyond me. Yeah, it's like Scarlet. But people love him. Like, Scarlet Spider is super popular. Or Kane, I think, is like another one of these kind of spider clones. But, like, they just know, they don't speak to me specifically. Yeah. I do think, I will say, you know, you know, you know, films come out and people are like, oh, you know, you can enjoy something even if something else exists that is bad. Mm-hmm. These Venom films, for instance. But I now have that problem of I was reading this. And when I was reading all the Venom bits, I could hear that Venom voice from the film in my head. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, it's ruined for me. That is one of my favorite bits of all of the Venom stuff. Like the dual voice that they had kind of like saying like the animated series. And I would always bug my older brother to say things at the same time as me so that we could (laughs) pretend that we were both Eddie and the symbiote speaking at the same time. I've always enjoyed that, that one part. Which one were you? I guess I was doing like the more monstrous one, so probably the symbiote. I guess. Well, I mean, I'd say that's yeah. probably a, probably yeah. the better choice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was very good. I was quite surprised about how good it was. To be honest, I was expecting it would to be fun at the very least. It reminded me. It's sort of like a, a Fast and Furious film. They are mm-hmm. fun, and you know, there's nine of them, so you know they've got their own little lore that you can get in behind. It's like, oh, it's that guy from from Tokyo Drift. Oh, it was a lot like that. Carnage, the Fast and Furious of the Marvel Universe. I don't know if that's a good endorsement. <laughs> well, they they, uh, they make enough money, so yeah, fair enough. You know, like I, there there is always an audience for for everything. Exactly. So, what could be a potential audience of what you read? You teased it earlier. Now, tell us more. Yeah, so I read a lot actually this last month. It's funny because for a lot of previous months, I've been complaining that I don't have enough time. This month, I revisited um, the Hawkeye Fraction Agile mm-hmm. run. I started reading again the unwritten uh, uh, Vertigo, I think. Vertigo or Image? I think Vertigo. Uh comic book series by Mike Carey, once uh, a British uh, writer that once mm-hmm. wrote for, for X-Men and who I think is very, very talented. Um, I started reading The Champions, which is like a, a young um, young Avengers type book. And it's right. funny because The Young Avengers almost feels like it, it is exclusively owned by like Hawkeye, Wiccan, mm-hmm. Hulkling, like those specific characters. Like it's hard to imagine... But in many ways, the the champions, which was a different type of uh, team book before with Hercules and so on, like the they seem to be basically young Avengers, right? Like there is not much of a distinction. I think like at some point there is a bit of an animosity between like Miss Marvel and the new Nova and Miles Morales. And the Avengers seem that they were a part of. And so I guess maybe that's why they in story do not want to be called the Avengers. Right. They go by the champions. I've been reading that. I finished the the Rainbow Roll run of Runaways, which was uh, a, a series uh, created by Brian K. Vaughan and Adrian Alfona many years back and has had like a consecutive 
good good runs by a variety of different people and rainbow roll i think is the best since brian k vaughn and she does an absolutely great job at like the the cool stuff from young superhero books which is a mix of adventure and figuring yourself out and like fun uncomplicated romance and she does an absolute great job but like the book that i'm going to talk about talk about this this time which is none of those so imagine how much <laughs> i've read is uh i revisited new mutants volume two and new x-men i guess really well, it maybe it's volume two but i think like the original grant morrison new x-men is considered right. technically x-men volume one yeah. so this new x-men is the one that follows new mutants volume two now if you have not read new mutants volume two it is a book that was written by a married written couple called nuncio de philippus and christina weir um various artists throughout so i don't i don't want to do a disservice by forgetting any please check out like you know like comic vine or any of these to figure out everybody that's worked on them um but newman's volume two kind of opens with uh, a original character named sofia mantega who will later be known as wind dancer and she is in venezuela uh hearing about her mother's death the the wind carries the words that are being said far away straight to her ears because that is her immune power she has the ability to control the wind much like right. guess, a storm on a smaller scale so basically what happens is that she is uh, sent to live to the U.S. with her rich, but basically ignoring her father and uh, and their their butler. And um, and so she kind of starts acting out because she's really unhappy there and she ends up getting locked up because she destroyed property. And Danny Moonstar is sent to to get her and to collect her and to bring her into the school. And so when you when they bring her to the school, you then kind of get to see what era we are in. And it's like you see uh, Xavier walking in with his zip, zipper um leather zipper jacket kind of thing mm -hmm. so you know that you're in the grant morrison new x-men era where they all, all the x-men were kind of wearing that like hot leather um and they start collecting mutants here and there like i said i read probably about like 50 issues so i won't go into deep detail about the majority of them the first new mutants volume two kind of arc what it does it, it is it starts introducing you to a mix of these new characters which include uh the i guess kind of sponge mutant power prodigy where if he's near anybody he just kind of absorbs their knowledge the the shy but um gaining some confidence wallflower who has the ability to spread pheromones but you know are fortunately carried by the wind and so she is a perfect roommate for wind dancer sofia mantega you kind of see like the other uh the bad boys or bad girls of the group the hellions who have um some mutants that i think landed well and some that did not land as well until later on you have like a hellion who names himself after emma frost D deceased students at this point who have since come back but at this point were deceased um mercury who is made of mercury uh rock slide who has a power at this point that where he detaches his arms and his like hands and he throws them at you which is like really he's like made of rocks it's very dumb and he it's has like to go does he go back and pick them up or does he get new hands so they kind of float there it's like there's a point where the, one of their missions is that they have to get to like this middle of this hedge maze and he's standing there and he's like taking off his arms and they're just like standing there beside him and i'm like this is very um. dumb i don't know it's not very inspired <laughs> i think by and this point in time they're like 
Maybe we should have just stick with a team of four. We're yeah, out and of so ideas. you know what? It's also at a time where the 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 thesis of Grant Morrison's uh, new X Men was that mutants were very on their way, like exponentially on their way to replace uh, Homo sapiens, right? Homo mm-hmm. superior was going to replace Homo sapiens, and so it is at a point where they are they're in a boom, and so there's all these mutants with a variety of powers and often like ridiculous looking ones. Like in New X Men, they have Beak, who is like just an ugly bird looking mutant. <laughs> And um, anyway, so that's happening. But uh, the, a lot of these characters like don't work as well. Like Tag also has a power where either he touches you and everybody runs away from you or runs towards you. And it's kind of like, I guess that's like a form of telepathy that you're trying to say. But like, what is the science bet- between the specificity of your power? And I think like the reality is just that like you have 50 mutants and you have to give them different powers. You're going to run out of good ideas. And I think a yeah. lot of that is kind of seen here. Um, the second arc kind of brings in more of the original New Mutants. You start seeing uh, Karma come in at the end of the first one. Karma being uh, the New Mutant that has the ability to control people, kind of like puppets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she it, it's off the tail end of her previous uh, appearance in, I think, maybe Extreme X-Men. I'm not sure where she was before, but basically she has a bit of a crush on Kitty Pride, And uh, that doesn't go well, so she returns to school. At the school, they find out that Magma is there at the end of an X-Men run. They, uh, I think it was like an un- Uncanny X-Men run. Uh, Jubilee, Magma, the, the former mutant known as Skin, I think he was the Gen X mutant. Um, they were all kind of like nailed to crosses and put on the lawn of the of the X-Men, of the mansion, right? Like this kind of peak uh, racism, racism activity that was happening. And so she's there. She's in a coma. She's recovering. Um, Rain Sinclair. Now, actually, you know, you're you're in the UK. Is Wolfsbane name said Rain like the the precipitation? Do you know this? It's R A H N E, and I've always been like, is this Ronnie Rain? I don't know. Like, I think not a... Rain. She was in the New Mutants film, wasn't she? What did they call her in that? I didn't watch it, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> oh, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think Anyways. Rain makes a lot of sense. It's a Scottish name, and presumably, or maybe it pulled, it uh, Claremont pulled it out of his ass. Who knows? But Rain is in this, and she's kind of like uh, long hair, which is unusual for Wolfsbane. She usually has it very, very short and very close. You know, like uh, she she's a bit of a, a tomboy, I guess is what I would say. Um, but right now, she's like uh, long hair, very feminine, uh, motorcycle, leather jacket. Like she's kind of... The concept, which is not very subtle, is that she has lost her mutant power, so she's trying to regain that wilderness, that wildness through other ways, instead of being able to turn into a wolf, and also kind of mourning her mom. This is following through some previous threads where Mystique went to Muir Island, shot Rain with a a gun that took away her powers, and then killed uh, Moira McTaggart. And so that's kind of like the the new mutants part of it. It's reintroducing these characters. There are some interesting threads developed. Like I do think uh, it's very, once you have a bit more of knowledge of the new mutants, it's cool to see how they're interacting as older people. Some of, uh, there's like a new cafe uh, barista that is brought into their, to their local pub. And, you know, it's like, it's kind of very reminiscent of the more like Claremont era of Mm -hmm. X-Men. Um, there is some some threads like Rain starts dating 
uh, Elixir, Josh Foley, who is a formerly part of the Purif- or Reavers, I guess, like the, the Donald Pierce kind of racist bigots. Mm-hmm. He is there until he discovers while being there that he is actually a mutant himself, you know, a not subtle way for self-hating people that are homophobic yeah. until they find out they are actually gay themselves. Um he he starts developing a relationship with Rain, a teacher student relationship. They do stress several times that she is but a two years older than him, kind of thing to make it seem less improper. But obviously, a lot of boundaries are crossed throughout the first series. The Numian series ends with basically the attack on the mansion and kind of figuring out what to do next. Because at this point, sorry to spoil for people who have not read the Grant Morrison New X Men, Magneto was posing as the as Zorn. And then reveals himself to have been hiding all this time in the in the mansion and destroying a huge chunk of New York, destroying the mansion, really bringing the X Men down all this time. And so that, that's kind of where the series ended, and then is relaunched in New X Men Academy X. Um, so the New X Men Academy X kind of has two eras. It has the DeFilippis and Weir era that continues off New Mutants almost directly with some subtle changes, and then at House of M. It kind of has a new era, which brings in Craig Kyle and Chris Yost, the co-creators of X-23 and the people that were very involved in X-Men Evolution. And there is a very different tone. So the the Academy X era first has an arc called Choosing Sides, where they're reintroducing what... um, the the mansion will be like for students uh, they they obviously have rebuilt it they're trying to bring new students in basically now there will be squads of six that will be tutored by um uh, faculty members so our main heroes are tutored by danny moonstar the hellions are tutored by um emma frost and there there's others that you kind of see the second arc involves uh it's called haunted i believe or something like this it, it it deals with a student that died in the middle of trying to escape the attack of magneto to the x mansion and his power was kind of teleporting things so he's still kind of caught he was caught between both worlds and then the third part is in uh the third arc involves it's called too much information and involves Prodigy's ability to gain knowledge, and he's kind of he he wants to know why, like what, why not remove the block that makes him forget the knowledge once he's separated, right? Like why not remove that and allow him to retain all this information? And so we have this kind of like Days of Future Past esque uh, imaginary future where a lot of the X Men end up end up dying at the hands as of in Prodigy. all the potential X Men futures, I think. Absolutely, always that that dystopia at the end, and then you know we wrap up before um, the end of the 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 Philippus and Weir era with some stories that kind of tie the the loose threads together. You know, uh, Rain Sinclair's uh, affair with Josh is revealed. You know, she ends up leaving for X Factor, which I don't know if you've read this run by mm-hmm. Peter David, but she isn't part of there, and that's kind of why where she goes from the school to there because of the, they found out about this breakup and escaping this thing. Um, it has the new X Men and the Hellions working together first to mourn uh, North Star, who died in the Wolverine series. At this time, uh, it's a great arc called Agents of Hydra, I think, or Agent right. of Shield, followed by Agent of Hydra. It's really, really good. It's like where I started reading Wolverine, and it's still one of my favorites. I okay. think it was written by Mark Millar if anybody wants to check that out. But as this wraps up, their last part they do is they kind of all team up to face off against Blob, and it, it's 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 fun, it's pleasant, it's not um, groundbreaking, I think. And I, I, I believe that I'm not alone in sensing that because you can tell very clearly that there was a mandate to change the direction. The next arc involves the House of M changed... Uh, 
it implications. Mm. And so they are all living in this world where some of them are agents of shield part of, some of them are part of like the Academy for tomorrow kind of thing. They mm-hmm. uncover a plot, a lot of deaths because again, it's an alternate future. So they're able to get away with that. And then it kind of all wraps up in for uh, those original creators and their runs. And they did, they did implement a lot of smaller characters here and there. Like you have DJ, who is a character whose mutant power is, uh, I don't know, something related to music. Like it's, <laughs> it's all very vague. Like you have what, Pixie, who is now a more popular character, but at the time just had pink hair, wings, and a helmet. And she makes a big point about talking about like, oh, no, are we going to do something exciting? Let me put on my helmet. And I was like, this is weird. This is like a weird concept that she needs is to put on a helmet. Is she different from... From Angel, that's not Angel with the big wing, like with the with you know no, Warren Worthington. Like, that's Angel with the yes, like Angel that's, from First that's Class. Angel from Grant Morrison's new X Men, who is Beak's wife actually, and they end up having babies oh, who are like very ugly looking birds. Who <laughs> it's a whole thing. Um. Anyway, so then when, when House of M ends, the new X new X Men starts, and I think these kids in specific, like this is one of the best places to see the effects of Wanda's no more mutants, mm-hmm. right? Like, a, you know, for the majority of the mainstream X Men, it is very few that lost their powers. I think, like in House of M, you see Iceman lose his powers, but basically nobody else. And then shortly after, and this has always been something that I've never understood, like in the X Men series called x-men run that followed house of m you find out that iceman still has his powers but had just like psychologically messed himself up to think that he didn't and then in that arc they depower polaris who had been seen using her powers and so it's like i guess if they not fully decide properly at the end of house of m and then need to fix it like the issue right after i don't know but in i think it's iceman is more popular than polaris probably but then it's like why did you not choose that that in the beginning like why did you because it's like literally the issue right after like the arc right after that they fix that but anyways new x-men loses academy x is this just new x-men at this point and this this big uh body of students go through a variety of things because most of them end up losing their powers like you the first arc is uh emma frost being overwhelmed by how much of a panic the students are because some of them have lost their powers some of them don't understand what's going on you know like you see um emma frost hearing a a student saying i can still fly i can still fly and she jumps off the roof and then like beast has to jump through a window and grab her because she has lost her powers Mm -hmm. she's desperately looking for a student named hydro and then wolverine pulls his body out of the pool saying like he's gone you know like that's just where he was caught when the mean powers started coming back like kevin a student named wither who can basically decay organic matter with his hands he wakes up and he hears we've lost our powers so he's like excited for the first time and he goes and he touches wallflower's hands and basically destroys it to like almost near bone like all the students are incredibly messed up by this whole thing Mm. emma frost first thing that she does is she makes uh her i guess daughter's weird complicated situation that she has with the stepford cuckoos uh she makes it make everyone go to sleep like they they all pass out while they try to sort out the situation she uh wolverine brings in um his clone slash daughter that at this point has been introduced in the tv show x-men evolution and then had her own mini and then was like in uncanny x-men in a very weird way another thing that i feel like was like not very well talked out because she's basically very feral x-23 in um in uncanny x-men like she just growls and has like an old classic savage land looking wolverine costume but in the miniseries that they had written she's a very well-developed character and she can speak she's like not the most eloquent person but she can speak anyways 
they bring her into the new X-Men and they, they Emma Frost thing is like the, the old squads with Tudor's thing, that's done. Danny Moonstar has to leave because she no longer has her power and they say that it is dangerous for non-mutants to be there while they're trying to figure all this out. And so she says instead what she's going to do is she does like a battle royale for all the students. And again, this is another point where Pixie is like, oh, I forgot my helmet. And I was like, why do you need a helmet? I don't understand. Okay. But they do a battle royale to pick out like the six winners. And um, this is kind of like the new team. for It's it's basically an exercise, a narrative exercise to be able to pull out like the new team that you want mm-hmm. and just kind of focus on them instead of doing all these squads that they had done previously. So the new X-Men team ends up being a mix of the Hellions and the new mutants and then with the addition of x23 it is x23 mercury hellion dust that was created in the grant morrison run who is uh i mean again this is another one of where the things with like the powers like did you need to make the middle eastern uh mutant a sand-based power like it almost seems racist but she's a cool character so i like her um does then rock slide who again dumb power we will get to that later um and elixir who is the healer they are in surge who is like an electricity-based uh, mutant. Um, Prodigy, the 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 mutant that we had previously discussed, is one of the depowered ones. Um, Wind Dancer is depowered. Wallflower is still powered, but she's recovering with her, her withered hand. Withered, yeah. after doing that, he runs away from the, the academy. And so they're, they're really like in a state of like disarray. Um, shortly after that comes a lot of like the more controversial things. Like the one thing that uh, Emma Frost decides to do is to get the students to safety. And so in the middle of the night, under the guise of the ONE or one, the sentinels that were outside of the mansion for during the decimation period, she decides to send the depowered students away. And as they're saying their goodbyes, they're crying. Tag also previously mentioned as a dumb power, depowered. Like you can tell that Kyle and Yost were like, we need to cut some of this fat because it doesn't make sense. So they put them all on the bus. They're heading out. As they're heading out, a missile comes and hits the bus, and immediately you've lost like a lot of these depowered mutants mm-hmm. killed off. And so at this time, it was really controversial because it was seem almost as disrespectful that all these characters that were created by Philippus and Weir were destroyed. I think at I kind of was more on board with this new era. I have since in rereading this appreciated a lot of what they were doing. But I do think that this kind of more action-based um, genre, as opposed to more like a soap opera that it was before, was probably a mandate from above. And perhaps mm-hmm. like DeFilippis and Weir would have been able to shift the narrative without having to get rid of all of these people. But I do think that it's also fair for Kyle and Yost to say, like, you know, there's a lot of fat here that we don't want to deal with. And, yeah. like, it did... I hate when they kill characters off and don't do anything about it. Like, this, this killing of these characters was the main impetus for the book going forward um and it doesn't stop there the the as they are mourning the loss of so many people like josh uh, elixir is dating wallflower and you find out that uh there is a mix of william striker the reverend who's uh preaching against uh, the leader of the purifiers preaching against um against the mutants and uh nimrod are somehow involved in seeing that this kind of cataclysmic end of mutants is like the right time to attack them and so he knew in advance when that bus was going to leave and so he destroyed them and he knows you, you see a vision where he knows that he has to kill this omega level mutant so that he's able to carry forward his thing and you think that it's it's josh because you see you see him in the vision and then as they're fighting a bit, Josh and, and Wallflower, all of a sudden you see Josh's face covered in blood and it's really Wallflower who has been sniped, this young girl, and just lying on the floor, head bleeding out. 
and um you know you find out that she was the mutant that was the the, the real target and so it's really grim you know that they're they, they end up having to rally together surge slowly losing her mind trying to get prodigy to go home to safety uh trying to keep everybody safe they end up encountering nimrod they manage to defeat him through various uh, plans and then at this point, Emma Frost finally accepts X-23 as staying there because for a while she had been trying to get rid of him. During this uh, last part of this fight with Nimrod, um, R- Rockslide tries to use his power of throwing his fists and explodes and you think he died, but then he reforms. And so they kind of change his power to more be like a Hulkling type. Right. Um, like he, just, he looks a lot more monstrous, I guess, and he's like a lot bigger in size. So they do, they do a lot of uh, work on perfecting these characters because there was a lot of not great stuff. The second arc deals with um, Mercury being captured to develop what is called a Predator X. It is like this insatiably hungry monster that hunts on the X gene. Mm-hmm. And then the third arc, the big arc, which I think is to me my favorite, is called uh, The Quest for Magic. And it is a book that basically involves. Um, the house of m situation like when house of m happened one of the characters that was involved was Ileana rasputin colossus sister that at this point we assumed has died a while back right she and she was a character that was brought back just for house of m because a lot of characters did come back and so in this transition blindfold who was a character introduced in astonishing x-men she's telling this story it's 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 said like a ghost story and she's letting them know about this story about this demon that one time captured a girl and started to fall in love with her and kept her in in limbo for a long time until she was rescued by the x-men and now she's uh she, she's been looking for her and like three days ago amanda sefton landed on earth and then they're like wait is this a real story or is this a fake story <laughs> and as they're figuring out that it is a real story the ground underneath opens up and they're dragged all into into limbo right all the the kid the new x-men kids and then over the next four issues they have like a very transformative arc where on the one hand, a group of them are captured by Belasco, the ones that were more directly in contact with Ileana during the House of M arc, and he's trying to figure out where is she. And then on the other hand, some other students that were sent further away, they encounter Ileana kind of confused and kind of trying to figure out what's been happening since House of M and wanting to go out there and kill um, Belasco. But she, he, he, she's saying that she no longer has her soul sword, so she needs to make a new one. And so she grabs Pixie, who previously has been basically just you know uh, a character that required a helmet for most scenes is her main thing and she starts because she's so pure of soul she starts grabbing her soul to make it she only is able to partially do it before getting attacked by a null who is i guess that's how you say it it's like a lizard i don't know a nolly a null whatever i'll go with the former i think yeah and so he he kind of stops her and so he she is only able to make a soul dagger it's a tiny little version of the soul sword and pixie has it and her hair is black so another improvement for pixie she's finally able to do things she does train pixie to use some magic specifically a teleportation spell with which they are able to go to where belasco is they all team up together they survive it at the same time uh surge and helion who had been outside the mansion kind of arguing uh were not dragged into limbo they have first used the sentinels to get to amanda sefton who is the former ruler of limbo one time sister of nightcrawler i believe and one time lover like i think the nightcrawler branch line is messed up but um they they basically use her to get back into limbo so it's it's a confluence of like the x-men and the sentinels and surge and hellion 
and on one end, then on the other hand, the Ileana new X-Men team, and then on the other hand, the, the Belasco new X-Men team, they all team up together. They are finally able to save themselves, and then they go up. And it is finally kind of like the wrapping up of this series. There are still three issues that come after the, this kind of wrapping up, but they are direct tie-ins to Messiah Complex, which was a crossover for several books. Mm-hmm. And in these two series, you basically see the ramifications of this brutal time that these kids have gone through, right? And it's like the the faculty, the Astonishing X-Men, so Cyclops, Emma Frost, Beast, Colossus, uh, Kitty Pride, Wolverine, talking about, like, how do we help these kids? Like, every time we try to save them, like, more and more of them end up dying. And, like, the kids, you can see them processing their PTSD. Um, they, they're trying to figure out who among them is the youngest one because they would be, like, the easiest target to get killed. And then uh, Elixir, who basically killed Belasco like he ends up entirely black and almost like with a death touch instead of a healing touch and so in the end they're kind of like just trying to figure out like how do we help these kids like and then it's like almost like the simplest of solutions this girl named Loa who has kind of like a, a disintegrating power too she just goes up to him and she's like hey do you want to make out and it's kind of goofy, but it's like at the same time, it's like, yeah, sometimes adults get lost in the complexity of problems and like kids have a much simpler view of the world. And so you see Elixir that was all previously black. He just looks at her and he smiles and he's like, yeah. And then he just turns gold again because, you know, it's like as simple as, as like being able to capture your youth again. It, the last issue does end with Pixie and the Noel, the lizard uh, being upgraded to the main team, which they were fan favorites for a while and they had been used in like minor roles here and there like when all the new x-men went to go to fight nimrod they left anol in charge of lying so he was lying to to the <laughs> one and the sentinels about where they had been um it then ties into the last three issues which are part of new uh, messiah complex which maybe is a conversation for another time but it does wrap up very nicely um i think in rereading this i was always a fan of the colin yost era i think that the quest for mad for magic is one of the best uh, arcs involving young superheroes that Marvel has ever put out, but I have gained a lot of new appreciation for the uh, Philippism Weir's kind of like previous work that they did. Like I, it was a lot more sentimental, a lot more uh, drama-y, but it had a lot of. Actually, I would say this for the entire series that these are people that have grown up reading the X Men, and so you see a lot of that love placed throughout the series. Now, did they need to kill that many uh, characters? Who knows? That's up for you to decide. I th- I, I enjoyed the story. Um, yeah. I can see why uh, Philippus and Weir were very upset, actually, during this time when, you know, like, a lot of these characters got needlessly killed, is what they say. But at the same time, for example, like, where we are now with X-Men, like, they brought all of them back. And that's kind of, like, the beauty of of comic books, right? Like, I, I know that there's an argument to be said that maybe you should kill, like, it should mean something to kill a character, but it did mean something. And that doesn't, like, not because it isn't permanent forever. It doesn't mean it didn't mean something right then, right? Like, Colossus yeah. died with the, leg- like, injecting himself to save pe- the mutants from the legacy virus. I think that's really important. And so, I don't know. I I, I loved it. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And then the last two issues were um, actually, I think, a lot the last arc so Quest for Magic and the last part is drawn by Scotty Young, but the last two issues in particular is drawn by Scotty Young in a way that is like, I think Scotty Young at his most inventive. Oh, and yeah. so it's oh, like Scotty really Young. scratchy. I would say definitely check it out. But overall, great run. Big fan of young superheroes because like I said, I think their perspective is very different and should be very different. Like if you're going to write 
a young superhero team, it shouldn't be basically just kids doing the same thing as adult superhero teams would mm. would be, right? And I think this is like really encapsulated in that last moment where it's like if you go up to Scott Summers and he has the weight of the world on his shoulders and you're just like you want to make out, like I don't think that's going to solve it for him, right? <laughs> but when it's like a 14-year-old kid who's probably, you know, like it's been a while since he's felt in love, like yeah, sometimes it is just as simple as that. So, I don't know, big fan. Big fan of of, of young superheroes. Uh, I read a lot of them this month. I probably will. I want to finish that Champions run. There's like a yeah. volume two that I haven't even started. I want to revisit um, young, young Avengers because I did read like the first run. I never read Children's Crusade, which is like kind of when Alan Heimberg came back and wrapped that story up. So a lot of that. I might check in, check out Teen Titans, which I've never fully explored, but maybe I'll try to find a good run of that. Oh, lots of, lots of youth. Yeah. I do think listening to people talk about the x-men if i was an x-man i would just go by my own name <laughs> i mean let's be honest it's like oh what's my power oh i can grow plants right so now i've got to have some plant-based name oh yeah i think in the book they do a good job that most often they just call them call each other by their names like they're not out here saying like rock slide and stuff i think just for ease of the reader talking mm-hmm. to other people like you don't know like Alani is lower, you know what I mean? Like it's just easier to call them by their names, simpler. But I think like in the book, they do a good job that it's like, yeah, most people would just call themselves by their names, not all the time using their code names. And I do now have a definitive answer, courtesy of rainsinclair.blogspot.com. <laughs> uh, Shrine to Wolfsbane, is that what it says? So how do you pronounce her name? There's always been some confusion about Rain's name. Most of us have misspelled it. Some of us don't know how to pronounce it. Or finally, here is the last word. Rain is pronounced like rain, the liquid that falls from the sky. Okay, fair enough. There we go. I mean, I have several of these. I don't need you to find out these answers for me right now. But it's like, (laughs) I read and I read kind of in Spanish. Like, I am reading English words, but when there are words that I don't know, I'm giving it a Spanish pronunciation. So, mm-hmm. for me, the submariner, I read it as Namor, because that's how I would say it, but I don't think... Is it Namor, I guess? Yeah, I think it's Namor. Namor, Namor right? And so, they, But sometimes there are these things where it's like, I've only ever encountered them in written form, so I've never had the yeah. need to say them out loud. But then when you start talking about comic books, you're like, oh, now I have to figure out how to verbalize this thing that I can definitely spell, but just have never had the need to say out loud. It's like the word that always remember, I remember is epitome. I always used to say it as epitome. And then mm-hmm. I spoke to someone and said it, and they were like, what? What? <laughs> what are you saying? It's like, oh, no, I look like a fool. But yeah. now I know. I'll always remember. It's epitome now. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of those in comic books. Like, I just, I don't know. Like, sometimes I just read it how I think it should be said. And then because I never have to say it out loud, I'm never exposed to the reality. No, that's actually true. I was. I think I just need to talk about this. You know, so the the X Men they had a battle royale to decide who's going to be the X Men. Why don't the teachers just be the X Men? I mean, therefore you're not putting kids at risk anymore. Wolverine yeah. can't even die. I mean, put him so, on the team. I guess in story there's a lot more detail. What ends up being the reason is that they basically just want that team to be kind of like almost like RAs of like the students that are left because right. they are dealing with some serious shit as the world is falling apart during decimation it's not like okay we're gonna take a break you guys are responsible but that doesn't end up happening in story right like for example for uh nimrod they they end up going to a wedding 
like Storm's wedding. And so they're they're leaving and they're like, wait, but like what about Nimrod? And like you end up finding out that Cyclops had people looking after like the leads, following the leads, but they didn't expect an attack to happen while they were gone. And it does. And then it falls on the kids to save them, right? But yeah, it it, it like it's kind of like you, artifices that you have to create so that you're able to get these kids to go do exciting things. Yeah, that's very true. I do like the X Men. I just I don't know. It all depends. Like, I mean, having having read four volumes of uh, Age of Apocalypse this year, I do find it, you've got to find the right the right time of X Men. I mean, X Men is really if you were to look at Marvel comics, they're all over the place in terms of quality. Yeah. And I would say Age of Apocalypse 2 is like every character ever being introduced only for the purpose of being introduced because it's like an alternate reality. So you want to know like what Emma Frost is doing, what Myra McTaggart is doing. Like they're not super relevant to the plot, but you need to see everybody. So it, I think you jump that that is not a great point to, to start, but I don't know. Maybe check out this one. Yeah, I've written it down. Also on this post-it note underneath <laughs> Dirty Money Maple Syrup. <laughs> So there we go. That is a PhD Student Reads episode 22. The last real episode of real, I suppose, in quotation marks. They're all real. Uh, of uh, 2021. What a year it's been. It's been like 2020 again. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> uh, there will be a New Year's episode this year featuring me and somebody else. I do not know who yet, but someone. Rodrigo Cocteen, busiest man in Canada. Who is he? <laughs> Yeah, I can't make That's it. Okay. So I mean, anybody who's listening to this, uh, Happy New Year, and I will catch you oh, in yeah. 2022. You can follow the show on Twitter at PhD Reads. You can follow Layered Butter uh, at Layered underscore Butter, just Layered Butter on Instagram. At mm-hmm. R Cockting, if you want to know what, what Rodrigo, Rodrigo does every other day, tell us more about updates from the Rod- land of Rodrigo. What's going on in Layered Butter these days? If you are a fan of Dune, if you went to see the Denis Villeneuve movie and you're like, wow, that's great. We are currently selling a Dune poster uh, on our website. It's always a limited run. So that's the cool part. You have a collectible item. Um, yeah, we have a regular and a variant edition. So head over to layerbutter.com slash store and check it out. I think layerbutter.com slash Dune is directly for the Dune poster, but it should also be in the store. I think I, may, I mentioned it every month now, but as a previous purchaser of a layered butter poster, I can confirm they are great. Yeah, and uh, we have, we're going to print really soon with our Space Jam poster, which we had sold out a while back. You know, but the, as with everything, there's just lineups to get into any, like even to a printing studio to get this poster printed. So that's coming out soon. That should be shipping. Um, we're going to print with our modern horror issue. So if you want to grab the discounted price before it kind of goes up after print, make sure to pre-order that one. And yeah, all good things. What's your favorite modern horror? I'm a big fan of Midsummer. Midsummer, yeah. Midsummer. I don't know how you say it. Like, uh, I think yeah. we just go with Midsummer, don't they? Yeah, Midsummer. Uh, I like that one. I think I was. I mean, I don't know. I, I've always been curious about doing something that is like a lot more hallucin. Like, as far as I go with drugs, it's kind of weed, and that's like at least I feel very in control of what I'm seeing <laughs> and hearing. I kind of have been curious of like further exploration of drugs, but I don't like the idea of not having control. So I don't know that I ever will. But that movie, it just conceptually has both cults and hallucinogenic drugs, which are both things that I find very fascinating. So definitely that one. That one's great. Yeah. And Florence Pugh, she's amazing. Yeah, that's new Black Widow. Old yeah. MCU is everywhere. You can't escape it, no matter what you talk about. I mean, every actor at this point is either <laughs> in the MCU or has an interview talking explicitly about how much they hate the MCU. Like, there's no in between. <laughs> Uh, Keanu Reeves, very keen. Oh, The Matrix, you, that comes out this month. 
what are your thoughts? That's a that's a, a Christmas film if I've ever seen one. <laughs> I am the reverse of a cynical person. As in, I think I, I people will always be like, I don't know why they have to do this. It's like just let them do it. If it sucks, you can say it sucks. That's fine. But yeah. if they want to do it, go for it. I'm down. I'll check it out. Yeah, absolutely. As will I. It seems interesting. It seems to be. Oh God, it's just the go-to word now, isn't it? But it seems to be a meta take on the Matrix. I feel like in that first trailer there was clips of the Matrix in it. It's like, well, this... well, I mean, it's like because also the Matrix conversation has exceed, like you know, like the idea of red pilling someone. Like it's left fiction too, mm. right? So I would imagine the Wachowski sisters have something to say about that. Well, I'm sure that will be discussed come January, come 2022, in a post Spider-Man world. I feel like we'll be talking about that for. And if it's bad, although if it is bad, I suppose we'll still be talking about it. That'll be a big shock if if it's bad. So yes, this was a Peter Shoot Reads episode twenty-two. If you don't come back for for New Year's Day, Happy Christmas, Happy New Year. I think that's the first time I've said it uh, this year. So now it's on on tape, so you can play it back if you want to hear me wishing you <laughs> Happy Holidays for as many times as you want. Uh, yeah, goodbye. Bye.